Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning, this is Kate. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Today is the final program in our April Explorers series. We've featured four National Geographic Society Explorers as well as Executive Vice President of National Geographic Society, Tia Garcia, this month. So far, our guests have included Aziz Abu Sarah, a Palestinian born in East Jerusalem who's doing innovative things to create peace and dialogue in places where there's conflict. We talked with Dr. Sasha Kramer, co-founder of SOIL, an organization based in Haiti that's solving two problems at once, what to do with human waste, and also how to replace eroding soils. And her work has addressed major health and sanitation concerns, as well as improved the quality of life for Haitians. We spoke with Dr. Hayat Cindy, the founder of the Institute for Imagination and Ingenuity, a scientist who's truly dedicated to making scientific career opportunities available for scientists, young scientists in Saudi Arabia and other places. Her low-tech diagnostic innovations have saved lives around the world. This week, our Explorer guest is Ken Banks, innovator, mobile technologist, and anthropologist. Ken is the founder of WanjaNet and has dedicated his life to applying mobile technology for positive social and environmental change in the developing world. He has spent the last 19 years or so working on projects in Africa. And his early research resulted in the development of Frontline SMS, an award-winning text messaging-based field communication system developed to assist grassroots nonprofit organizations. And Ken's going to tell us about that today. Welcome to Visionary Leader, Ken. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. I'm glad to have you. You know, Ken, you call yourself a mobile technologist and also an anthropologist. And I've been... um, reading about and thinking about you and the work you're doing and I thought this is one of those careers that doesn't show up in the career counseling offices at college campuses around the world. <laughs> so could you please explain what a mobile technologist and, and also the, how does the anthropologist come to play? What is it that you do? So uh, in short, I spend most of my time trying to figure out how mobile technology can be used to promote positive social and environmental change around the world. As we all know, mobile phones have made a big big impact on our lives in the so-called developed world where we can now tweet each other and message each other and send pictures and and chat and email and do all manner of things. Uh, Mobile phones have had an equally uh, important revolutionary um, impact in the developing world where they're delivering healthcare and environmental information and helping farmers 
combat disease with their crops and, and all sorts of, uh, of other similar, similar initiatives. And what I'm trying to do in my work is try to figure out how mobile phones can better do that and how we can make sure that the sort of rampant innovation that we see on our side of the world can be transplanted and made useful to people who are trying to solve some of those, those bigger problems. The, the anthropology bit really comes in uh, when it's about really thinking about how do you understand how people use technology. So ultimately, technology is relatively benign. It's, uh, it's fairly neutral, doesn't do much on its own. Many of the challenges and many of the difficulties, but also many of the very interesting things can happen, of course, when people start to access and use that technology. And anthropology is very, very useful at trying to study and understand how people do that based on cultural, geographical uh, and other issues. Can you tell us a little bit, Ken, about the impact of your technology so far? Maybe tell us a story about um, how people are using technology um, in the ways that you're describing. So I was very fortunate to start working in, in mobiles for development, as the field is, is widely known, uh, in around 2003. And things were very, very early stage then, but there was clearly potential for mobile phones to start to do very, very useful things in the field for people. If we think back to that, that time, most people didn't have landlines. There was no landline infrastructure in many parts of the developing world. And in fact, as you went out to rural areas, there was very little at all. Perhaps one phone box in a post office in a village somewhere serving a very large area. A phone box which would probably often not be working, or if it was, there would be a queue for a whole day just to, to line up to make a call. And mobile phones have suddenly appeared and given people the opportunity to start communicating where they live, to communicate more broadly, to join the global information revolution. And as well as being very useful for things like you know, phoning home and keeping in touch with family, um, keeping up with news and other information, uh, suddenly healthcare workers found that they were able to contact patients more effectively. So saving on perhaps a day of traveling to villages to remind people to take their medicines or farmers standing in their fields who noticed that there are certain insects or bugs on their crops can suddenly send a text message or make a phone call to a service and find out how they can combat that. So mobile phones have really opened up all these communication opportunities that weren't previously there. Uh, about 40 to 50% uh, of Africans now have a mobile phone, and all this has really happened um, in the context, of course, of the African continent. In the last sort of 10 or 12 years, it really has happened very, very quickly. And the, the social potential of the technology, although it's very, very exciting in health and agriculture and in reporting human rights violations and in election monitoring and expanding the reach of education. We're still very, very early um, in really, really figuring out what the true potential can be, which probably, in my view, is, is huge. I think the examples you've just given us um, give, do give a sense of the potential and, and the, um, I don't know, what the, the, the many, many uses of mobile technology to uh, shape change, actually, in the world. I mean, you founded uh, Kiwanja.net. Is that, am I saying it properly? Kiwanja.net. Kiwanja.net, okay. And the tagline for your organization is where technology meets anthropology, conservation, and development. This really does sound like a true niche, and I'm curious, what does Kiwanja mean? Uh, Kiwanja is Swahili for earth. Um, it can have multiple meanings, in fact. It could be earth as in soil, but it can also be... Uh, a meeting place, a gathering place, a market, um, a football strip, uh, an airfield. 
So it's sort of fairly wide-reaching. I, I just like the sound of it, certainly in the context of meeting place. What I was trying to do was to create a space for discussion, collaboration, and meeting of minds around mobile technology. And I was also a little bit tired of the sort of big high-tech, sort of tech365.com names that many people <laughs> use. just sounded nice and friendly and approachable, and uh, I kind of like it now. I do too. I do. I like it a lot. And, and I love the idea of it's a meeting space. You know, it's a, it's a kind of um, versatile kind of a meeting space. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about what Kiwanja does? And, and I think you've explained what you do. How does Kiwanja support that? So when I was starting out in 2003, I was working for a specific nonprofit, uh, mostly in South Africa and Mozambique, who were very, very interested in how mobile phones could be used in conservation. And I found myself meeting increasing numbers of nonprofits around that time who were asking the same questions, but they couldn't order all afford consultants to do that for them. So what I decided was that the things I was learning and the things I was seeing and the kind of writing and, and thinking I was um, going through would be better shared more widely with the wider nonprofit community. And that, that of course, led to the, the QAnch.net website. And my mission really was to just um, provide a resource for nonprofits who were interested in thinking about how mobile phones could be useful to them. But the one that was free and accessible and one where they could easily reach out and contact me, um, I would blog and try and share best practices, try and connect people with other people who may have answers to, to their problems and do all this in a, in a very non-commercial way. Um, most of the grassroots nonprofits that I've worked with and I think some of the really incredibly valuable work that I, I saw over my years working in Africa was done by very, very small grassroots groups who didn't have funding or access to, you know, to large companies or consultancies to do this stuff for them. And, and they really needed somebody to be a friendly, approachable face where they could go and, uh, and seek that kind of information. So I, I started that nearly 10 years ago. And I think I've succeeded largely. I think we've become a little bit of a hub for people interested in how to use mobile phone technology and particularly among the smaller individual grassroots users. And that's something I'm, I'm particularly proud of. The big guys can generally speaking look after themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds, I love, I love that word hub, kind of a hub for people wanting to find ways to use mobile technology. And uh, it sounds like you've been very willing to share your experiences and your knowledge with others, you know, for the sake of this purpose, this mission. Um, Ken, we're going to be taking a break in just a moment, and I want to save your story for after the break. Um, but I do want to ask you, when we were talking before um, in pre preparation for today's conversation, you mentioned to me that you're quite driven about what you do, that you're a really focused person. I'm, I'm curious, what motivates you? Um, I think uh, that the short answer to that would be that, that having, since 1993, spent quite a bit of time on the ground, particularly in Africa, um, you, you come to realize that, that life sucks for a majority of people on the planet. And I just felt incredibly lucky that I wasn't one of them and seemed very lucky that, or felt very lucky that I was born on this particular side of the fence where I sort of, sort of look into these very large um, developmental problems that existed around the world. So I think what drives me is really, it's more a, a question of fairness. Uh, the world seems very unfair and many people don't deserve the card that they're given. And rather than using my passion and my skill and my drive and the very, very small amount of time I have on this earth to make myself rich or make somebody else, else rich, I thought it really made more sense to try and figure out ways of making life a little bit more bearable for those that weren't as fortunate as me. And I think it really is as simple as that. 
Well, that is uh, that is you know a very a direct statement about <laughs> what motivates you and what drives you, and I think it's one that uh, many of us relate to. You know, not all of us know how to take action on. So, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm speaking today with Ken Banks, who's the founder of Coanjanet. He's devoted himself to bringing mobile technology to developing countries for all kinds of purposes. And we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, Ken, I want to invite you to share your full story with us. We'll be right back. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Ken Banks today, the uh, fourth and final of our explorers in our April Explorer series. Um, Ken was explaining to us before the break what mobile technology really means, particularly in the way that he is bringing it to the de- developing nations. And Ken, you know, as we were preparing for this conversation today, I continue to think about your life story and um, your journey, actually, to today and to to the work you're doing, to the life you're living. And it is extraordinary. And our show is called Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life. So this is a story that I really want everyone to hear because I think there's so many aspects of your life that we can relate to and also that really help us understand where you're coming from. So to begin, I think it would be wonderful to just let you start at the beginning. Tell us your story. Sure. Well, I was born in Jersey, in the Channel Islands, not, not New Jersey or anywhere near the United States. People often make that mistake until they hear my accent and realize it doesn't quite fit with the East Coast. Uh, and Jersey is a very small island between England and France, and it's an offshore financial center. It's uh, a very nice place, actually, to be, to be born, a very good place to grow up, and very privileged in a sense. And it's gone through something of a boom time over the last 
a few decades with with finance in particular being a, a very big industry for it. Uh, my parents actually met in Jersey while on holiday. My mother was over there with her parents on holiday. She was about 19, 20 at the time, and my dad was working in a bar. And they met and uh, decided that they wanted to get married and settle down there. So my mother went home and then returned to Jersey. Uh, they got married in the lunchtime. They met for lunch, got married and went back to work. I think my mom was a bit of a rebel um, and my father as well. So I probably follow in their footsteps to a certain extent. <laughs> but, um, they got married and then uh, they had four children. I was the second of, of four. I have an elder brother and two two younger sisters. And um, things were a little bit, little bit tough. Dad was always in and out of different jobs and unable to really settle, it seemed. And unfortunately, in uh, April 1973, when I was about five and a half, six years old, uh, he passed away quite suddenly and left my mother with, with the four of us. And I don't remember much about that time, but I do remember the morning that he wasn't there. It's very strange, I think, when you're a child that you, you're quite perceptive in some strange way. Uh, we were just told he'd gone to work early. Uh, he never came yeah. back, of course, and so I didn't really think about it after that. It was quite strange. My mum was very determined to go on and, and bring us up and work very hard um, to bring the four of us up. Um, wow. I think quite remarkably, she was very inspirational and uh, really encouraged me in particular to, to really pursue a lot of the things that interested me. Um, when I was about 11 years old, an uh, uh, oil tanker broke up off the coast of Jersey and I wanted to write up a project, so she bought me a very cheap second-hand typewriter, which I, um, I still have that oil project folder to this day actually here with me now. And ah. It's quite, a, quite an obscure, strange piece of work for an 11-year-old to do. <laughs> a very weird child. But I think it was uh, the start of uh, maybe a trend that when I decided I wanted to do something, I became very, very focused and very, very driven and didn't want to do it by half measures at all. Um, I became actually quite good at writing. My mum encouraged us to write to our grandparents every weekend, which we did often by grumbling and moaning about it. But I think it was, it was good to get into that practice. And I, I discovered poetry and became quite good at poetry. I won a couple of competitions on the island. Um, but the sad thing for me was that school didn't really measure the kinds of things I was good at. So when I left school, I wasn't um, particularly a, a high achiever. And certainly didn't go to university. There are no universities on Jersey, so you have to go to the UK, and it's quite an upheaval. And in those days, not many people from Jersey really did go to university, so it was no surprise that I didn't go. Uh, I actually ended up going when I was 30, uh, nearly 20 years later, after I discovered the thing I really wanted to study. At that time, I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, so I went through school, and, and on the way, I discovered computing. I was incredibly fortunate to, again fortunate, to have a local club down the road from where I lived. Um, we lived on a housing estate, so it's a bit of a sort of a council, government-owned estate. Uh, it was quite nice back then, but um, it's not such a nice place now when I go back. And we had a local club up the road run by a man called Mr. Cooper, who was quite mysterious in a way, but he seemed to dedicate his time to providing sports and various opportunities for children on the estate. And I got on the waiting list for the club and eventually, after about a year, got into the club and the one thing that really attracted me were the computers. Um, this was about 1982, 1983. Uh, Microsoft Windows wasn't around. PCs as we know them weren't around. Uh, but there were these Commodore PET computers, which were these very heavy metal things that were very popular in schools, I think in particular, because they were metal and heavy and very strong that kids couldn't actually bash them around too much. Um, and while most children played games, I was just very curious about how they worked. 
And I discovered some, some commands I could type in which actually exposed the code. Then I started playing with the code and, and started breaking the programs and then started figuring out ways of making them run a little bit better. And, and that was really the early stages of my, my IT career, I suppose. Um, maybe the entrepreneurial flair started to come out as well at that time because I started writing educational programs uh, for Mr. Cooper, who also, in, in some of his time, used to teach children who were slightly slow at learning to read and write at school and give them extra lessons. And I managed to write some programs that actually helped children to read, uh, which, looking back, was, was quite forward-thinking of him. And, and I was... Yeah, quite honored, honored for me to be able to get involved in that type of work. But Ken, how, how old were you then? Tell, remind us of how old you were at that time. I would have been about, uh, about 15 at that time, 14, 15, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I was hugely you know, honored to actually be able to use computers at all because uh, they were only just starting to teach them at school. Um, and I missed out on school, uh, IT in school. So I was, I was all self-taught. Um, but it was fun, and uh, I got offered a job with a company, in fact, when I was about 16, which I turned down. Uh, unlike Bill Gates, who decided to, to quit his education, I decided to continue. Uh-huh. Uh, and I saw school through and failed most of my exams, but I tried. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that the year I did my exams, in fact, was a World Cup football year, and I, I spent more time watching the football. The World Cup, yeah. <laughs> you know, I kind of had this strange, um, strange sort of, niggling thing in the back of my mind that it wasn't actually going to make much difference to me that I was going to succeed at something anyway. Maybe a lot of people feel that way, but I kind of felt that it didn't really have that much of an impact. When I left school, in fact, I went straight into the finance industry because that's what most children did back then um, during the booming 80s in finance. Mm-hmm. So I didn't struggle to get a job, but I kept my interest in computing and, and ended up operating the computers at the bank and started to do IT and computing work um, as a profession, um, which again was, was um, really quite great for me when I think about how I started and, and still had no professional qualifications to be running large computers at, at merchant banks dealing with hundreds of millions of pounds of people's money. Um, it was a bit of a step up, mm-hmm. I think, say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I sort of did that for a while, but then I started getting interested in Africa as well. I, I watched Live Aid, of course, in 1985, which a lot of people on the planet saw. Majority. Yes, I remember it. TVs probably saw it. It was a big. It was a big deal, and it was more telling for me because it was my sister's birthday, and we went out for a meal that evening. So we watched watched all these horrific pictures of famine, and people struggling, and mothers just desperately trying to keep their children alive, and children losing their their mothers and fathers, and it was just really terrible. And we sort of went out in the evening and had a meal. And it just seemed it was a very stark contrast, um, which wasn't lost on me. Um, and, of course, like most people, started to take a bit of an interest in what was going on and what wasn't working. Uh, and then, through a few strange turns of fate, I ended up uh, going to Zambia in 1993, or having the opportunity to go to Zambia in 1993, where I helped build a school and saw at first hand how people were having to struggle through and really live their lives, but at the same time remain incredibly upbeat and incredibly happy and incredibly optimistic, despite the fact they seem to have so little. And again, that, that wasn't lost on me either, that we had everything that we thought we needed in our lives, yet we were the unhappy ones. And I think many people do, do find that when they travel around the developing world, the sense of people taking control of their own destiny and working very, very hard to try and pull themselves out of it. And, and the work I do now, I think, with, with grassroots nonprofits is very much focused on helping those type of people. I'm, I have all the time in the world for people who are 
working hard to improve them, their, themselves and, and improve the lives of people around them. Uh, if they're not that motivated, then I, I tend to be quite happy to leave them to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Africa became a, a big part of my life from that point. Um, I went to Zambia in 1993 and I went to Uganda in 1995 to help build a hospital and by this point was very, very interested. Um, but all I could really offer the developing world was, was IT and offshore finance and it wasn't particularly in demand um, back in those days. The internet wasn't um, particularly prevalent anywhere. Uh, offshore banking wasn't particularly relevant at all. Um, so I started to think about how I could make myself useful. So I um, ended up going to university. I thought, well, if I can't do anything right now, I will um, go to university and I will study uh, development studies and try and understand the history of the problems and how people are trying to solve them and why things aren't working. Um, the numbers you see thrown at the developing world you know, in the tens of billions are, are quite staggering and you just wonder at that kind of level why it's not working. So I, I, I suppose the second part of my, my journey really began then. I, I sold everything I'd earned up to that point. I was 27, uh, left a very good job, um, sold everything, invited my work colleagues around to a, a cottage I was renting. They bought everything. They wow. left everything. I kept one bed and one chair. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting there that night just thinking, my goodness, everything I've worked for was gone. So I was excited because uh, I think rebirth is important. I think sometimes we tend to sort of get set into a certain path and we're slightly afraid of reinventing ourselves and slightly afraid of, of rebirth. And I always find that quite exciting. I think it's an opportunity to, to really take a turn and, and, you know, we rarely know what we want to do when we're younger. I wanted to be a train driver for a while and many children want to be pilots and all sorts of things. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to change direction later in life, despite what careers advisors might tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to university and I spent three years studying development studies and the anthropology came in. Again, by luck, I was more curious about anthropology than I was anything. Uh, I didn't think it was going to be particularly useful to me in my career because at that time I didn't really know what I was going to end up doing. Uh, and I think that's the point probably to make in this, that I was generally headed on a path um, to try and understand the developing world and to try and contribute to solving the problems in some way but I had absolutely no idea what that was going to be but I felt education was a big part of that so having spent time on the ground trying to understand what life was like for non-profits I felt it was time to do something academically and also it's hard to get jobs without degrees these days I think a few years ago you would get through to the final round if you would had a degree of interviews but but today it just gets you past the first the first phase it's very very tough yeah it has become you know, we're going to have to take a break in a, in a moment, um, Ken, and I don't want to rush your story. Um, I have so many thoughts and response to what you've been t- telling us, particularly as I think about our listeners and the kinds of, um, I don't know, life, life lessons that they're experiencing. Uh, I think of my own 16-year-old son and this question about what do I do with my future? I like what you just said about, you no, know, you don't have to know. You can let it unfold. So I'm really looking forward to um continuing after this break to hear the next chapter, which I know is a, actually a pretty big chapter. So we're going to take the break right now, and we'll be right back to hear the rest of the story. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
If you're ready to find your personal brand, look no further than Brand Your Fire, Get What You Want Radio with host Monica Magnetti. To achieve success in business, who you are and how you're presenting yourself makes all of the difference. Some of the topics discussed on our show include personal branding, what it is and how it will help you. We'll discuss the aspects of this including how to create a brand, drive traffic and increase SEO. Brand Your Fire, Get What You Want Radio airs live every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Play ball! If you're looking to talk baseball, even in the offseason, look no further than the King's Corner Talking Baseball with former World Series champion Jim Lairitz. Jim's known for a rather controversial stance during his show. He's brutally honest and ready to talk with current and former players, owners, and other key figures to bring you baseball from an insider's view. You won't want to miss a single episode. The King's Corner Talking Baseball with Jim Lairitz is heard every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. This is Kate. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Ken Banks today who's telling us about his journey um, from his his childhood and uh, the island of Jersey, the Channel Island of Jersey, and all the way to Africa is where we are right now, I think, and um, also the pursuit of education, I think, is where we really ended up. And I have invited Ken to tell his story um, in some detail because I think it's really quite an extraordinary one and it's still unfolding um, and Ken I'm eager to reflect on your story with you once you finish but you left us in a good part so why don't you pick back up sure uh, well at, at university where I decided to, to edu- educate myself around the issues uh, I, I struggled for a while I hadn't actually done well at school so I was hardly the, the perfect uh, candidate for university education but I'd shown enough interest uh, to the University of Sussex in the UK, which which accepted me, and um, after a while, I really really reveled in the opportunity to learn, and and was introduced to technology and appropriate technologies and technology projects in developing countries, which fitted very neatly with my early career in IT, and and that that really put me on the path uh, where I am now. Uh, there's a book called Small Is Beautiful by E. F. Schumacher, which was written in 1973, the year in fact my father died, funnily enough, mm. and that really was a, a seminal book for me, which, which really made me think about how we build things that work for people. Uh, when I graduated from university, I, I went to Cable and Wireless and just went back to IT for a while to pay off some bills and just to get some money. Uh, I then ended up randomly in Finland teaching English for a year. My wife, my now wife, is Finnish. Uh, we were dating. Uh, we were far apart. I decided that it would better to be together. Um, so I quit a very good job for the second time, <laughs> sold up for the second time. Um, becoming a bit of a habit, really, mm-hmm. and uh, moved to Finland and spent a year teaching English at universities and, and at big businesses, which was a, a great experience for me uh, and a good experience living in a, another country. 
Uh, I left Finland. I was interested in primate conservation, so I decided to go to Nigeria to work at a primate sanctuary. Um, sounds slightly random, but uh, I guess it is. But in, Jer <laughs> in Jersey, Gerald Durrell, who's a famous uh, zoologist who pioneered captive breeding, he, he's got a, a fantastic conservation organization on the island. It's now called Durrell Wildlife. And I was exposed to that as a young child, so I was always fascinated in, in primates. And it was something I was considering taking up as a, a career. And, of course, going through my usual ethos in life that, that the best way to learn is to put yourself into an environment where you can learn and the best place to learn about primates was a primate sanctuary. Uh, so I found one in Nigeria. I actually found it on the day of 9-11. Uh, so I missed everything that happened that day until I got home. Mm. So that was the one thing I was doing wow. on 9-11, one of those dates that, that everyone says you should be able to remember where you were. Uh, I went to Nigeria at the end of 2001. Uh, to work at this primate sanctuary and again was was shocked and horrified but also amazed by what was being done uh, at such a small scale level there was a very it was a very small sanctuary in, in Calabar in southern Nigeria um, didn't have much money but it had about 100 primates in the back garden of a house where I lived um, there was a very very effective education program many of the children in Calabar had never seen a primate before we tend to think that African children are surrounded by wildlife and they see it every day. Well, well they don't. Um, they probably see it less than we do. So there was a great education program, um, some very, very committed staff, some wonderful work going on. Um, and I just thought that it was incredible that that was being done with so few resources. Again, it just reinforced my belief in smaller grassroots nonprofits. Um, later in 2002, uh, uh, celebrating my birthday, I was on a motorbike which got hit by a car. Mm. And I broke my leg in two places, which was a bit nasty. Yes. But funnily enough, it, it was the real, it was the break, was the career break, quite literally. Wow. Uh, because I found myself uh, rushed home uh, with the broken leg. It was broken for eight days. I was eventually got back to Jersey uh, where it was fixed. And I found myself without a home, without a job, without really anything, with no money. Uh, and it was pretty down time, actually. I, I felt I was back to square one, and I had no idea what was going to happen next. And the sort of luck kicked in again. I got a phone call out of the blue at the end of 2002 from some friends who were working at a conservation organization in Cambridge, where I now live. And they wanted somebody who understood technology and conservation. And mm. that was a rare, a rare mix back then. There weren't that many people that knew both. And, of course, I'd spent a lot of time working in technology, and I'd spent a bit of time working in Africa, certainly for the year in Nigeria, but I'd previously done some biodiversity survey work in Uganda and worked at Jersey Zoo, and they knew all about this. So I was offered a job in Cambridge starting in January 2003 to try and understand what mobile phones meant to developing countries and nonprofits that worked within them. And that's really where this whole story began now, where QAnja.net grew from. Um, I was actually saying the other day that it actually scares me to think what my life would be like if I hadn't broken my leg because none of this would have happened. So it's, it's strange to reflect back at that particular moment. And all of that work really led to greater understanding of how nonprofits were starting to think of using mobile phones. Uh, and then in 2005 led to the development of Frontline SMS, which is a text messaging platform, which basically turns a, a mobile phone plugged into a computer with a cable into a two-way text messaging system. And it works at a very, very simple level. So you don't need the internet. You don't need high degrees of technical competence to make it work. And it was perfect for grassroots nonprofits who were thinking about 
how they could send messages to all the healthcare workers they worked with or all the farmers or how those people could ask questions back or how you could record uh, election monitoring projects or violations or how you can get people to report human rights abuses in the field really opened up a whole world of opportunity for communication for these organizations. And it really came out of a, just a, a random thought one Saturday evening in Cambridge, watching football, drinking a bottle of beer, again goes back to that sort of a strange turning point, I suppose, in my life. But I never expected the software to, to be so big and to do so well. Uh, it's now being used in over 70 countries. Um, millions of people are benefiting um, in messaging through the software. Uh, been downloaded about 23,000 times now, being used in 20 different sectors of development. So it's had an impact much greater, I think, than one person could ever really hope to have. And I feel privileged more than anything to have created something which really empowers the organizations on the ground who are working incredibly hard against all the odds to make people's lives a little bit more bearable, which going back to the very beginning is what I'm trying to do. You know, Ken, I've, I've never on this radio show <clears throat> invited anyone to tell their story at length the way that you just did. And, you know, so first of all, thank you for uh, doing it. And I know that um, talking about yourself at length is not nat- actually your natural style of communicating. But I do think that your story, you know, your story is really uh, quite a a powerful one for all of us to hear. And I I'm hoping that our listeners are hearing what I'm hearing, which is, um, you know, this boy growing up with some adversity and some struggle, not necessarily acing school, but having all kinds of um, kind of uh, wonderful strengths and interests, you know, the writing, the poetry, the uh, computer programming and you know, this that wonderful story about getting into the computer programming club and and then not just participating, but actually following your curiosity to take that whole thing apart, you know, and then kind of the, the path of an unfolding of a life that I think is seems so driven by what you what you have been curious about. And your statement was, I believe to learn anything you have to put yourself in the place of learning in order to learn it. And, you know, you just have done that again and again. And you've also, your story, I think, like all of us, has these kind of um, highs and lows. You know, there's certain rock-bottom moments where, you know, the leg is broken or the uh, apartment is emptied or whatever it is, and you're mm-hmm. kind of looking at the situation saying, okay, what am I doing? Or, okay, is what is this opportunity? And I'm not sure how it connects. You know, it seems kind of random, but here I go. And yet, this... Last piece, you were just describing where you were, um, you know, engaged to bring together conservation and technology. Suddenly, your whole conservation effort, which had perhaps seemed like a tangent in some ways, uh, links up with your technology interest. And you suddenly can look back and say, wow, these things were actually coming, converging. These were, these were necessary elements of a life story that prepared you to do the thing you're doing today. You needed to have both of them or all of what you've told us in order to be eligible in a way for the kinds of things that you're doing right now. And I, I'm, really, I'm really highlighting that because I think often in our lives we don't know why we are where we are. We're not sure what it, what it is that uh, we're doing today um, means for what we want to do in the future. And I, I think your story... Is a, is a story of a real journey and a journey, um, a journey driven by a sense of sort of guiding and abiding commitment to making the world better for people who aren't um, 
as fortunate as as some perceive uh, de- developed nations to be. So you've said some really powerful things that I just want to I want to receive your story and thank you very much for focusing on it so much. Thank you. You know, as I as I've listened to it, um, I've been I've been listening as much for the um, the insights or the you know the aha moments you've drawn from your own journey. And I'm curious, you know, what what would you say have are some of the grounding philosophies or ideas, Ken, that guide you? That's an interesting question, and I I try myself quite often to unpick what exactly it is that, that drives me and. I wrote about it, I tried, well, I tried to write about it once on, on my blog, and I was curious about the role of, of spirituality in development and spirituality in, in the use of technology in development. Uh, church groups have for a long time been working in the developing world, and, and cl- clearly church-led groups have a degree of religion. Uh, I'm not a religious person, but I do feel a sense of, of spiritual driving in, in what I do, and it, it is quite hard to describe, and I think everybody has a different sense of what spirituality means to them, and that's perhaps why it's such a such a fascinating subject. But it does it does feel incredibly right to me what I'm I'm trying to do, and I know I could probably have a much easier life and do something much easier, and perhaps have better financial security, and and focus on myself a little bit more. But I've never really been like that. Uh, when I developed the Qanda.net website, one of the things that I I very consciously did was was write it in the third person. Anybody actually reading the Qanda.net site would think that there are a number of us working behind this organization when it's, it's really just me. And they would think that it was someone else writing about me rather than me writing about me. Uh, I think that we need to be very conscious of the role of the ego in anything that we do. And I think it's absolutely key that if we're to really achieve things in our lives, that we have to um, drop the ego and put ourselves second and be aware that actually a lot more gets done if you don't worry about who gets the credit for it. And, and I guess I try to put myself in, in that kind of a position. Uh, so ultimately, when I, when I pass away in another, you know, 30 or 40 years from, from this planet, the, the fraction of a second, you know, we're, we're each a grain of sand on a sort of beach of life, that fraction of a blink of an eye that I've spent on the earth, I've actually managed to contribute in some, in some positive way. It does define me, actually, that people would, would not want to do that and would actually decide to do anything counterproductive or, or evil to people. That's a, that's a very powerful statement. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to hear your vision. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. 
Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading Conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate, and I'm talking today to Ken Banks, founder of Kiwanja Net. He has devoted himself to the application of mobile technology for positive social and environmental change in the developing world. And, you know, I want to also mention that Ken was awarded a Stanford University Reuters Digital Vision Fellowship in 2006. He's been named a Pop Tech Social Innovation Fellow in 2008. In 2009, he was named a laureate of the Tech Awards, an international awards program honoring innovators from around the world who are applying technology to benefit humanity. He's also, as we know, been a National Geographic Emerging Explorer and an Ashoka Fellow in 2011. He's received the 2011 Pizzagati Prize for Software in the Public Interest and was selected as a member of the UK Prime Minister's Delegation to Africa in July 2011. His work has been supported by the MacArthur Foundation, Open Society Institute, Rockefeller Foundation, and the list goes on. So we've been hearing Ken's very humbly told story, but I also want to just take a moment to shine a light on the... um, the prominence and I think the prestige of um, recognition he's earned for the work that he's been doing. So, Ken, we've we've been contemplating your story and you've given us some very wise perspective. I wonder in the remaining moments of our show if, if you could talk for a moment about your vision. You know, I personally believe that each one of us have the potential to be visionary with our lives and I think that the times we're living in require us to be visionary about the future uh, for the sake of not only ourselves but for the, fu- the sustainable future. Um, and I'm hoping that our listeners are learning how to be visionary by listening to the show and are learning how to think about contributing to the future with their lives. So tell me, what is the vision that, that guides you? So I'm not particularly uh, a big vision person. I think there's sometimes a tendency to try and think of the biggest possible impact that you could have in your lifetime and then generally fail to meet it. Uh, big international NGOs have a very good habit of saying they're going to eradicate a certain disease which is highly impractical and then they fail to do it and it's a, it's a bit of a failure. So I think I'm a believer more in, about being, rea- being realistic about what a single person could do mm-hmm. in their lifetime to contribute to, to the planet in, in a meaningful way. I think the one thing probably that really works its way through everything that I do is... I believe very strongly that everybody should be given a chance to, to maximize their potential. And, of course, that potential will be different at different levels. Uh, I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago uh, called Enabling the Inspiration Generation. And it was very much about trying to inspire and hope that people who also felt they had something to contribute to the world would actually 
get off their backsides to an extent and not take the easy option, but pick on a dream, find something that really, really switches them on, something that really gets them up in the morning and find out ways and, and figure out ways of actually doing that. Um, as I've done, I think, uh, I think the work that I've done just shows that really anything is possible. You don't need a privileged background. You don't need parents in high places. You don't need money to really achieve anything. You can achieve things on multiple levels. And even if you just help four or five people, you know, if everyone on the planet just helped four or five people, then everyone will be pretty much better off. So there's no need to think, think too big. Um, but I think the message I always give and the one that resonates most with people seems to be the one that um, regardless of the problems you face in your life or regardless of the cards that you're dealt, if you find that one thing that really inspires you, then you need to work on that. You need to stick to it. You need to stick to it through thick and thin and pick yourself up when you're knocked down um, and, and just go on. And don't let anybody tell you what you're doing is wrong. If it feels right to you, and no one's getting hurt, then you should carry on with it. Good advice. That's powerful advice. Ken, as you are reflecting on your work today and on your life, you know what's most important to you right now? Uh, it's, it's an interesting time for me um, in a number of ways. Uh, we had our first son eight months ago, Henry. Mm. So I'm a father for the first time. I left it very late, but I was <laughs> not really in a position to do much running around the world doing crazy things. Um, my mother also passed away last, last April, and she was very, very inspirational to me. And it's been quite a challenge to readjust, I suppose, because a lot of what I did was really for her. I wanted her to share in all of the amazing awards I've received, which have all been completely unexpected, and the funding uh, and the excitement and the sense, I suppose, of achievement. I wanted her to really realized that a lot of what was happening now was because of her. And she would be the first person I'd call up to explain and, and mm -hmm. give news when I remember winning the National Geographic Emerging Explorer and I, I emailed her and phoned her up and, and we had a chat and she was completely amazed and very, very proud. So it, it's, it's a period of adjustment for me at the moment. I think that um, with you know, Henry, who was born after my mother died, so she never met him, uh, which is a shame, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, with that happening and, and Henry and mother and also just rethinking how I provide financial security for my family. For the first time, I've had to start thinking at a more personal level and start to be a little bit more selfish, which is something that I'm not used to doing. But I've cut back on my travel. Um, I'm very much trying to be home uh, for my son mm -hmm. and trying to figure out a future where I can continue to help people. But I also don't forget that I have a family now. Well, that is a very important transition. And it, it, will raise, I'm sure, new questions and new solutions, actually, for you, new new opportunities, and also choices. You know, that's inevitably what happens in this stage of life. Um, you know, as you look ahead with uh, Kiwanja, what's next? Do you see anything coming on the horizon there? Well, I have a fascination for how technology can bring people together and how technology can help people communicate better. So Frontline SMS, I think, is a, is a great example of a technology which, which seeks to do that. And I also have a fascination in providing people tools to enable them to do what they do best. So it's about creating a toolkit for people who want to communicate better, want to improve their lives and so on. Now, the one thing I'm spending more of my time on at the moment than I have previously been doing is, is thinking about issues of local economic empowerment and how we reconnect communities in an age of globalization and an age where 
the global downturn is, is affecting people the world over, quite often really through no fault of their own. So I'm looking at a, a new project which will hopefully help people rebuild and reconnect with the people they live next live with and in their own areas. And, of course, it'll be useful to me to have that where I live. So that's the main focus right now. But, of course, Frontline SMS will continue to have a big part of, of what I do as things progress and move forward. Well, it's, it's interesting. It sounds like you're kind of, you're kind of surveying uh, the future and, and seeing seeing a general landscape to move to move forward into um Absolutely. you know and, and i i wonder ken you know as you as you continue in this work and this sort of unfolding of life you know toward this vision of making life more bearable for people on our planet and for helping people to really achieve their potential through the, the kind of work that you do um you know do you have any encouraging words that you'd like to offer to our listeners about their own um, journey, their own lives. Yeah, I think uh, going back to, I think the last hour of the conversation we've had, in fact, is, is uh, if you don't immediately find that one thing which, which really switches you on and really drives you, then just put yourself in the kinds of environments where you have a better chance of finding it. I think you won't find it sitting at home watching television. I think it's also important to remember that money isn't everything and you don't need money to take an idea and actually develop something and that you should maximize every single opportunity that you get um, and remember that you're only as good as the last thing you've done. It doesn't matter if you gave a great talk last year. It's all about the one you're doing now mm-hmm. and if you give everything 100%, it will eventually pay off and people will gravitate towards your, what you're doing and you'll start to build support and momentum of your own and however big or small that becomes, it doesn't matter. As long as you feel good about what you're doing, and as long as people are benefiting from that, then that's really all that matters. So stick with it and um, never give up. Wow. I think with that in mind, we should begin to um, book you for inspirational tour. <laughs> that was a great advice for people to hear. And I appreciate what you said about, you know, you don't have to, it's not all about having the money or making money, you know, don't give up. So it's a very powerful message. Ken, I want to say thank you for joining me today and for um, really uh, pausing in your busy life to reflect on, you know, the journey that you've been on and the, this idea of the one thing that switches you on. And, you know, I, I like it so much that your story, um, your curiosity took you in lots of different directions and uh, you had that broken leg that led you to have that flash of insight about bringing technology and conservation together through the th- the events that unfolded. But I think it's also just a reminder to everyone that if you aren't sure yet what, where your path is taking you, it uh, doesn't mean abandon it, you know, let it unfold and maximize the opportunities that you're having right now. Thank you very much for joining me today, Ken. Thank you, Kate. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to be with you, and I wish you all a great week. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.